As we get started this morning, we're moving into the last section of the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 10 is filled with Proverbs. What are some Proverbs that perhaps your mother or your father taught you when you were young that have stuck with you? I'm not talking about Proverbs from the book of Proverbs, but English or other language Proverbs that you may have been taught. What are some of your favorite that you can remember? Anyone? Okay, good. A bird in the bush is worth two in the hand. Anyone got another one? Yes, Bill. Okay, see the handwriting on the wall? Any others? You can catch more bees with honey than you can with Good. You can catch more bees with honey than you can more flies, isn't it? More flies with honey than you can with vinegar. Okay, good. John? Uh, wish in one hand and do something else in the other hand and see which one gets full. <laughs> uh, wish with one hand and do something with the other hand and see which one gets full. Yes? Okay, good. That's right out of Second Thessalonians, isn't it? Yes, Lori. Okay, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. Hey, that fits in chapter ten. Yes, Rusty. You're going to get it when your father gets home. <laughs> You're going to get it when your father gets home. Boy, I I think we all heard that one, especially the boys, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my you know proverbs fill our lives there's these axiomatic truths that are generally true they don't always apply in every single situation but in many situations they do chapter 10 is filled with proverbs we've got 20 verses and they're in excess of maybe 30 proverbs because some of the verses have two proverbs at a time and as we look at this section the first question is how in the world does it fit in uh, is, is it just a gathering, a collection, a dump for Proverbs? And there are some commentators who approach it that way and say, yeah, that's all it is. It's just a collection of Proverbs. There's no tie, no relationship to the context. But as we go through this chapter, we find out that there really is a tie. And the, the first thing we see in chapter 10 is everything is about wisdom versus folly. Wisdom versus folly. So as we get started, we're going to take a final reflection about folly in chapter 10. Uh, what is foolishness, biblically, is really what this chapter is going to address. In chapter 9, verses 10 through 18, uh, there was some discussion there by Solomon of the nature and, a, and various examples of what comprises wisdom, especially godly wisdom. In chapter 10, 1 through 20, we really focus on wisdom's opposite, foolishness. Now, it's not that wisdom isn't discussed in chapter 10. Wisdom is. It's included. It's given as the opposite. It's given as the contrary, the contradiction. But the focus really is upon folly, upon what foolishness is all about. And it really begins by tying together chapter 9, verse 18, the last verse of chapter 9, and chapter 10, verse 1. And as we look at this, 918 said, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And then look at chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. Notice that contrast. They're both talking about the same thing, that it only takes a little bit to destroy a lot of good. Now, this concept of Wisdom versus folly are the two paths of wisdom that are described in most wisdom books and even in the wisdom psalms. Like we see it in Psalm 1 where you see the path of the wicked versus the path or the way of the righteous. In verses 1 through 4, uh, Solomon tells us how to recognize fools. And here all we do is need to look in a mirror, right? <laughs> when I get up in the morning and I look in the, in the mirror, I can see what a fool I am or have been. And uh, I was telling my wife this morning that I sent off an email last night and uh, congratulated this fellow on the trip that he'd had to the United States, hoped he had a good trip back to uh, Scotland, and I said, please greet your wife Barbara for me. This morning I woke up and I said, no, that's not her name. <laughs> it's Kate. And we had talked about that at the conference in Atlanta because uh, of William and Kate right now, the big news in England. 
And here, this couple is Willie and Kate. And uh, I, for some reason, I knew there was a connection there somewhere. I mean, I'm William, she's Barbara, and so I just assumed that that's the connection, you know. See, folly. (laughs) Oh my! So you know, foolishness happens. And I also told her about an email that went awry. I uh, answered an email from Dennis Swanson, but my what I said in the email was intended for my wife. So Dennis wrote back an email and said, "Oops." (laughs) So you see, we can look in the mirror and find out what folly is all about. Verse 1 is talking about dead flies, or some say deadly flies, poisonous flies, flies that bring death. But as we think about that and look at the context, it's really just flies that are dead that get trapped in the ointment or the perfumer's oil. They get entangled in it, can't leave, they die, and then they just decay and spoil the perfume or the ointment. And when the verse says there that uh, dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, that make stink, actually in the original language there are two verbs there, but they don't have an and between them. And so most translations just translate one of them. And here the New American Standard just translates one of them. Literally it says, uh, makes stink, makes bubble up, or causes stench and pours forth. And the idea is that if you open the jar or the bottle of this type of perfumed oil, you're overwhelmed by a rush, a boiling up, an exuding of a terrible odor that smells worse than the decaying uh, corpse. And the interesting thing is this type of oil was normally used to try to prevent uh, the stench on uh, dead bodies, and so it was used partly to embalm, partly to cover up. They would they would cover the body with these oils, put them in the tomb, and uh, they would hope that that would take care of some of the smell of corruption. But this ointment smells as bad, if not worse. And so the lesson is, a little thing can bring about something that is very unacceptable. And here, the idea is a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom. So it just says that no matter if wisdom is present or not, even if it is heavy and honorable, great and accomplished, that wisdom can be negated by one small act of foolishness. That's the point. And that's the way we ended chapter 9 as well. And so Solomon is really just kicking off on this and saying, okay, this is what I want to talk about this entire section. And he goes over and over it. One of the ways we can talk about this uh, is say an ounce of folly can destroy a ton of wisdom. All right? What other Proverbs can you think of or compose to express this thought? Do you know of any? Pardon? That stinks to high heaven. That stinks to high heaven. Well, it sounds more like a metaphor or a figure of speech than a proverb, but okay. What do you know about apples? One bad apple spoils the whole barrel. That's the same type of, of uh, metaphor, isn't it? Or, pardon? Potatoes are the same way, okay? So we could say one bad potato spoils a whole batch. Butch? Okay, one sinner can do much harm. It's very similar to what we have right there in chapter 9, verse 18, right? Okay, that's where you heard it. (laughs) (laughs) Gary? (laughs) Okay, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. That's a proverb that Jesus used. You see, that's the point. These type of proverbs play on that image. that something great and good, even large, can be stopped by one little thing. You know, uh, pardon? Or at least effective. effective. But think of the uh, space shuttle that exploded some years ago. And all it was was one little leak around one O-ring on one rocket engine, right? And uh, the other space shuttle that in landing just exploded and and went apart all over Texas 
uh, remember that that was one little breach in the outside skin of that space shuttle that tore it apart, destroyed the whole thing, and killed everyone on board. One little thing. Yes? That's right. And you could put that into a proverbial statement in some way too, right? And uh, actually, you might use that proverb of that student, right? One bad apple spoils a whole barrel. All right. Thank you, Barbara. One match destroys a whole forest, right? All these things. And we go to the book of James. What little matter is the tongue? And yet it sets aflame all of creation. All right. The wise person tends to uh, or goes to the right, but the fool to the left. Notice in verse 2, and this is not a political statement, by the way. <laughs> Much to my wife's chagrin. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. And this builds upon the picture of the right hand being a hand of power, the right hand being the hand of privilege or honor, uh, and remember the image that Jesus uh, gave us in Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and goat nations, the sheep nations, the believers who will be blessed, the goat nations are those who are unbelievers who will be judged. And where are the sheep nations placed? At his right hand. Where are the goat nations placed? As left hand. Uh, look in the Old Testament when Jacob is blessing his grandsons. What hand does he put out? The right hand, because the right hand is the hand of blessing. And sometimes the old patriarchs would maneuver to try to get one son blessed by their father as opposed to another. And they were sometimes fooled in that where dad would cross his hands <laughs> and uh, put his right hand on the son that was set at the left hand, his left hand on the son's right hand in order to get that straightened out the way he felt it should be done in the will of God. And so we're, we're familiar with that all the way through scripture. The right hand is the right hand of blessing. And, and the idea here is the right hand, that the one who goes to the right is seeking a path of favor, of right, of that which is correct, of that which is to be uh, uh, productive and is a path of life. The person who goes to the left in this type of imagery is the person who's going into the place of disfavor, rejection, and is uh, involved in perhaps the path of death instead of the path of life. Uh, some of this is in almost every culture. I, how many of you are left-handed, by the way? Okay, a number of lefties in here, all right? And uh, in Bangladesh, uh, you know, the culture was you ate with your right hand, you touched people or gestured to people with the right hand, you would never touch them with your left hand. Part of that's because the left hand used to be, now in modern times it's changed a little bit, the left hand was all they had for toilet paper. And so the left hand was always the unclean hand, and that's not a hand you would use to eat food or you use to touch others. That would be an insult then to touch people with your left hand. And so left-handed people in Bangladesh really had a problem, right? Because then they're forced into a culture and mold that forced them to use the right hand, which is unnatural to them. And in many cultures, that same concept has come out probably because of the majority of people being right-handed. That's the place of power. Uh, ancient armies and even modern armies today will even often attack the enemy from the left because it's considered their weak side as opposed to the right. Think of the word we have in English, sinister. The word sinister in English comes from the Latin sinistra that means left hand. Really. Yeah, and there are many cultures, many languages that have that. The Greek has words like that and other languages as well where the right hand refers to that. Which it, even if you notice the Latin and the German, the German recht, that which is right or just is the right hand as well. And uh, that all comes out. Jan. In Africa, I am left-handed. Only in Africa? <laughs> <laughs> However, it really, you have to really think about not using your left hand for the same reason that you have it in Bangladesh. Right. But I would have to transfer, I would carry a glass out in my left hand, but before I handed it to the person, I had to put it in my right hand and hand it to them with right. my right hand. When you're, giving, when you're paying for something, put your hand, money in your right hand. 
Okay. Yes. Right. They had a way around that in Bangladesh. For example, if you're eating at a table and you eat with your hands, yeah. so you're busy eating with your right hand and you're to pass something. How are you going to pass food with a filthy, dirty right hand? All greasy and oily and covered with food and everything. So what you do is you pick it up with your left, you put your right hand or your right arm under your left to pass it so that they aren't insulted because they see you're propping it up with the right hand. You see, there's ways around it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> now, notice that this text does not speak of walking. It does not talk about the feet. It does not talk about walking. It's not talking about a path that is literal for walking, but it's talking about the heart. The wise man tends to is inclined toward that which is good and favorable. The foolish man is inclined toward that which is the opposite. But... Notice in the very next verse, it moves on to something that is more obvious and open and concrete. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking. Literally, it means that his mind is absent. It's lacking. And he demonstrates to everyone that he's a fool. Now, how in the world can people identify a fool walking along a road? How would you identify a person that you think is foolish? What are the clues that you Staggering. watch for? What are the clues that Staggering. tell you a person, pardon? Staggering. Staggering, not picking up their feet. Walking in the middle of the street. Walking in the middle of the street, right. Okay, what other ways? Pardon? Bumping into. Bumping into things, what else? Now remember that some of these things we're observing here may not indicate a fool at all. Could indicate a person who's injured, could ind indicate a person who is hampered because of some uh, difficulty or disability, right? Okay. Now, all right. Now, how, how many other ways can you recognize a person as a fool? Walking on the wrong side. Walking on the wrong side Walking of the road. Against traffic. Walking against traffic. What about the rest of you? Tom's got four answers already, and he only allowed Linda two prayer requests. <laughs> okay, changing directions, going back. You're talking about drivers. Changing lanes without signaling, right? Talking on the cell phone, texting while driving. It's amazing how you can be on the freeway and you see a car up ahead and you say, that person's either number one drunk or number two, they're talking on a cell phone. You get up next to them and sure enough, they're on a cell phone, right? Okay, Bill. Okay, that, that tells you that person's a fool, right? They've done something wrong, it's a mistake. All right. What else? Any other clues you have of a person being a fool? How about loud, boisterous talking when everything else is quiet? Right? You see, there's a lot of ways that we can uh, notice, notice that someone is a fool just by watching those things that they do. Uh, behaving arrogantly ignoring the rights and needs of others, rebelling against spiritual things. Those are all marks of a fool. Uh, it's interesting, I, I spent a lot of time in the airport over this past week, went to Atlanta, was there all week, and sat in the airport for about six hours on uh, uh, Friday. And being there, and you have a lot of time to watch people, you know? It's very interesting to watch people and, and see how they behave and what things they do. And all, the, all along, this lesson was going through my mind. And I kept looking and watching for those that were fools, you know. And uh, one, I, I looked, and, and here was a, a fellow with his laptop open. And there was a shelf above where he had his laptop set, and he had a drink set there. And he kept putting other stuff up there next to it. And he bumped it once, and I thought, boy, that's not going to work for very long. Sure enough, boom, spilled. You don't put something of a drink above your laptop, right? On a shelf close by where it can be knocked off, especially if you're going to keep putting stuff up there. Up and down, you don't do that. And uh, you watch things. You, you begin to note little things like that that say that person isn't thinking clearly. They may be totally exhausted from traveling. Uh, something happens in there, and you behave foolishly. Now, in verse 4, we move to a ruler's temper 
and it says, when it rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offense. Now, the word for ruler here is the word in the Hebrew, Mosheel, that I have here for you. It can refer to anyone, not just a king, not just a pharaoh, but those who are below. This is used of Joseph in the book of Genesis as being the second to Pharaoh. It's used of those who are officials or officers underneath the king. There, there can be many of these rulers. And so it includes multiple levels of authority. And what it says here is if you find yourself in a situation where a leader or a government official is angry, don't just leave. Don't resign your post just because that official is angry. And if we ask the question why, the problem here is if, if we just walk out or leave, the official stays angry, right? And if he's angry with us, he's going to stay angry with us. So we say why, but then how are we going to remain calm? What do we do in response? If someone is angry, how do we respond? It says here that uh, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offense. What's, what is calm. Solomon talking about? Pardon? Remain calm. Remain calm how? Soft Okay, a soft answer turns away wrath, Proverbs chapter 15. That's one way, right? What else? Butch? Okay, good. Prayer, right? Take it as an opportunity to, to pray about the situation rather than overreacting or reacting in haste. Remember, that was mentioned by uh, Solomon earlier in an earlier chapter. He said, do not leave a ruler's presence in haste. And so here the same thing. In your handout there on page 76, there at the bottom of that page, I gave you a quote from Derek Kidner. He suggests avoiding self-inflicted damage for while it may feel magnificent to resign your post, which is what, how the New English Bible translates this phrase here, ostensibly on principle, but actually in a fit of pride. You see, sometimes we react that way just because of pride. Our pride's hurt. Our personal feelings are hurt. And so because that person is angry, we're not going to work with them anymore, and we walk away in a huff. He says it is, in fact, less impressive more immature than it feels to resign under such circumstances. In other words, when faced with this situation, be calm. Don't return anger with anger. Pray. Give time to think. And respond with calm, quiet words. A soft answer. Now, as we move on to verses 5 through 7, we move into an upside-down world. And uh, here Solomon begins by saying, there is an evil I have seen. And this phraseology I have seen is in verse 5 and verse 7 that brackets this section and puts it out here. And uh, he's talking here about something he's mentioned before. He's talked about death being an evil. But here the evil is not death. This evil is something that is not good, obviously. It's something improper. It's something disruptive, unjust. It may even be harmful, and that's what's involved. But here, the impropriety has to do with something happening in government, all right? And as we think about our own nation at this time, there, we, we often see a lot of improprieties uh, in government. We see government foolishness all the time, and we see those making mistakes or doing things. And here, the word for error that is used, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. That word for error is something that is uh, thoughtless. It's culpable because the person is responsible. It's, an, it's usually an administrative oversight. But this oversight results in something entering the government and someone being placed in power in a position where that individual should not be placed. And that is the evil that Solomon is talking about. 
And verse 5 has a word for ruler that is different than the word ruler in verse 4. Here the word for ruler is the word shalit, which is where we get the word sultan from, a sultan. And it's the idea of a leader of a clan or of a tribe or a lesser group uh, within the nation. And so it's talking here about this ruler uh, making this error, perhaps as he's leaving office and appointing someone who should not be there, or perhaps coming into office and appointing someone as an aide or some form of government minister that is not suitable for office. It can be used of chief also, yes. Mm-hmm. In verse 6, notice how the particular situation is described. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. The idea is a fool has been put into a place of power or authority. That's what's wrong. Now, you say, but wait a minute. Why does it set the fool opposite the rich man? Well, in the ancient societies, normally those who were wise were those who were rich. Uh, because they, first of all, were wise in saving the resources they had, using them with uh, great efficiency, and uh, sometimes uh, then being able to multiply their holdings in that fashion. So a good handler of resources uh, was a person who would eventually become rich within the ancient society. Now, riches always come with danger because riches can corrupt too. And so you have a lot of rich men that are, are not good. I mean, think of the way Jesus said that it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. He's talking about the corruption of riches. He's not saying that every rich man cannot enter the kingdom, but generally speaking, that would be true in his day. But in some days, the rich were not so bad, and the rich were those who had demonstrated a certain amount of wisdom and were better able to govern. They were telling the story in the stamp. Okay. <laughs> you never know what a rich man is going to do, right? With his money. Right? So you have to remember here that this picture, remember Proverbs are axioms or statements that are generally true, not always true. These Proverbs are not intended to cover every single situation. This doesn't mean that every single rich man or rich woman is capable of sitting in a place of authority or power. Just because you are a successful business, I mean, this was shown with uh, Meg Whitman and uh, Carly Fiorina. They didn't win the election. And my wife and I were talking about that on the way in this morning. I think part of it is that people are so upset about jobs being outsourced overseas that that's the reason those two women lost. You cannot put a business person in a position uh, to go run for an elected office today if they are people who have outsourced thousands or tens of thousands of jobs. And the millions she used to try to win the race, too. Right, yeah. So we, you know, I think that just shows that this proverb still applies in some ways, and yet in other ways it can be counteracted by what people do. Uh, if you act with a certain amount of wisdom that show that you have the good of the nation or the good of the people in mind, then you'll be more successful than the, than the person who has riches but who doesn't demonstrate that. And so as you look at these things, these are part of the problems. Notice verse 7. I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. And that's because royalty, nobility, and the military used horses, especially in Israel, because in Israel, horses were not a, a natural part of the environment. Horses were not raised in Israel. They had to go outside. They had to go to the Hittites. They had to go to Egypt in order to get horses because Israel did not have horses. They did not live on the land naturally. They were not uh, domesticated there. They were not taken care of there. There you had mules and donkeys and you had camels. And uh, only the rich could afford to have animals to transport them. Uh, and the only animal that really most of the poor could have if they were, <laughs> if you can call it that, if they had enough being poor, they could have a mule. 
and they would sometimes ride on it. Now, the whole point of this is not that this is a terrible thing and it should never happen. We'll talk about that in a minute because the scripture also talks about how God purposefully causes this to happen. Okay? But it's put here to tell us that things in life do not always turn out the way we expect it to be. It would be normal to expect the rich and the powerful to be in leadership rather than a slave and the poor. And so when the slave and the poor are in control, rather than the rich and the powerful, you know something has changed, whether for the good or for the bad, depends upon the situation within that nation. But it does say it's not what we normally expect. It's not what we normally expect. Let's look at Hannah's son. This is an example of the opposite expectation. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to do what? To make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. Now you see, the opposite can take place and be the right thing. There is a time when God wants a poor person to be elevated to power, when he wants a slave to leave slavery and be in power. Lincoln was raised poor, okay? But there's many examples. And we can, we can go through the history, not only of the United States, but the world, and see those rare examples where that takes place. And part of this issue is the fact that God cares for the poor and the disenfranchised. He cares for the oppressed. And the mark of his kingdom is that the oppressed have a place equal to those who are the nobility or those who have power and authority. And so again, remember, the Proverbs in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes are generally true, but not always true. Okay, there are exceptions. Look at what Solomon himself said in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. Notice he said he's better. There it's better to have an immature person be king than to have the old foolish fellow on, on the throne. For he has come out of prison even to become king. I don't think he's talking about Saul or David. I think here he may be thinking of others that are yet to come or, or could be yet to come. I mean, uh, think of Jephthah, the judge, uh, exiled and returned to become uh, leader of Israel. Even though he was born poor in his kingdom, you see, these are the things that Solomon says he has seen. And he doesn't say here that the world's upside down. We have to remember that as he goes through the book, he has certain points he's making. What's the point in chapter 10? The point in chapter 10 is a little thing can change a larger thing. And that things don't always turn out the way we expect. And we must keep in mind that there are exceptions to these rules. So what is Solomon's, see, did I miss something? No, okay. What is Solomon's advice here then uh, to a good godly citizen as that citizen seeks to live in a nation that suddenly has a lot of things turned upside down, a lot of confusion, disorientation, problems, and uh, problems with corruption in authority, corrupt officials. Uh, what, what, are we, what are we to do in such a situation? Almost sounds like he's looking in our newspapers today, right? And watching the uh, corruption trials in Congress, uh, watching the problems with election fraud, watching the problems of wrong people running for office, uh, and some even getting into the offices eventually. All of these things happening to the detriment of the people and the nation. What's his advice? What would he tell us? Well, in chapter 10, in verse 4, he would tell us, Continue on as before without leaving any governmental position. In other words, just because someone's in power authority over you or over me, whether we're talking about a mayor of a city or whether we're talking about a president of a nation, 
whether we're talking about a boss in case we're a government employee, wait it out. The situation will change. Don't hastily leave your position. Number two, and then another way to hear it, don't run to Canada and take up citizenship there. All right, Laurie? That's right. You give up your own opportunity to be an influence. Number two, he says, be an observer like Solomon himself. Solomon watches these things and observes and learns from them. We need to do the same. Three, behave wisely. Take proper precautions even for your daily labors. All right? Put air in those tires. All right? Make certain your gas tank's full. Uh, make certain you have your earthquake uh, kit. You know, these type things. Pay your bills on time. All of these things. Take care of your health. Get plenty of sleep. Eat a square meal. All right? Number four, speak with grace and avoid loquaciousness. Don't be wordy. Don't dominate conversations. But speak with grace. Verses 12 to 14. Remember that the future cannot be known. <laughs> no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. We can wake up tomorrow and find everything's changing, whether for good or for bad. So don't, if we take an action today, determine on what we think is going to happen tomorrow, chances are we're going to be wrong. It's like calling the weather. Yeah. Number six, be diligent, not lazy. Verse 18. Number seven, pay attention to the normal enjoyments and necessities of life, which we've been being taught constantly through Ecclesiastes. And finally, number eight, do not speak disrespectfully of those in authority. You may want to. You may feel like it. There may be good cause to speak disrespectfully of those in authority. But as godly believers, we cannot get ourselves in a position of saying things like that. We have to be cautious about how we speak and what we say, what we blog, what we put on Facebook, etc., etc., all right? That's Solomon's advice for us. Now, yes, go ahead. David, when he was being pursued by Saul, and he wouldn't take his life because he's the Lord's anointed. That's right. He, he yielded to the authority. This, he's my king. He's seeking to kill me. I don't like him, but I'm not going to raise my hand against him. He's my king. All right? Now, in verses 8 through 11, we have proverbs from everyday life settings. And these Proverbs teach that calamity awaits anyone at any time in any situation in our daily living. Whether you're digging a pit, you can be digging a pit and you can end up falling into it yourself. All right? You may be tearing down a wall, whether of a house or a wall along a field or a wall of a city. And a serpent could bite you and you could die. You could be quarrying stones. And as you cut the stone, suddenly it breaks loose and slips and you're crushed. Losing a foot, losing a life. You're splitting logs. And the uh, axe hits a hard part of the log and bounces off and cuts off your foot. Or the axe head flies off and hits someone else. Or the log rolls and uh, your foot gets trapped underneath it. There's any number of things. A splinter comes off hits you in the eye and you lose your eyesight. Charming serpents is also referred to here in this category. Kind of an unusual one, but uh, yet it still applies. And it says here, basically, you know, a charm of serpents is going to make certain that he's got the serpent charm before he goes and messes with it. <laughs> because if not, he's going to get bit or a customer or a standbyer is going to get hit with that serpent and is going to be harmed. These are common actions in everyday life, looking at life for the ancient Israelite. And Solomon is saying, you know, in anything you do here, use your head. The idea here is that wisdom has the advantage of giving success if it's applied in everyday life. Don't run a stop sign. The wisdom is stop, look before you go. All right? Uh, that's just common sense. Look both ways before crossing a street if you're a pedestrian. Those are things we hear about all the time. 
But that's common knowledge. And we, if we apply ourselves and use wisdom, then we will have some success. Use your head. Think about what you're doing. Proceed with proper caution. A particular proverb given here is sharpen your knife before carving the chicken. All right? What other proverbs can you think of that apply to this? Butch? Okay, work smarter, not harder. Exactly. In fact, that sounds exactly like what we have here. The axe is dull and he does not sharpen his edge. Then he must exert more strength. Right? That fits perfectly. Right? Okay, what other proverbs can you think of that match that same truth? Yes? Okay, better to use your head than break your back. Or get a hernia. All right? Never come to a gunfight with a knife. <laughs> All right? That's the type of wisdom we're talking about here. Eddie, got another one? Anyone got any others that fit this? You get the picture, right? A stitch in time saves nine. Trust in the Lord and keep your powder dry. Okay, good. Yes. Stitch in time saves nine. If you have a, a tear in your garment starting to tear, or if you have a button that's starting to come off, and it's just hanging by a thread, repair it. Because you may put one stitch in now, it'll save nine stitches later as it broadens or it lengthens or the tear works further. Yeah, good proverbs. Can you think of applications of this principle? These principles talk about, use your head, think about where you, what you're doing, proceed with proper caution, plan ahead, prepare. How does this apply in other situations in life? Can you think of other applications? Bill? Yeah, make sure you Okay, save for an emergency. If Lori? You, if you are addressing an authority, go in prepared with your research and your prayer and uh, all those things. Okay, beforehand. good. If you're going to have to appear before some authority, go prepared. Have your paperwork done. What else? What about in the Christian life, in our normal uh, living in service for Christ? How does this apply? Lead all that you do in prayer. Pardon? Lead all that you do in prayer. Bathe everything we do in prayer. Be prepared with prayer. Okay, what else? Be not many teachers, for they shall receive the greater condemnation. All right. Don't plan to be a teacher. <laughs> That's what she's saying. <laughs> James 3. Okay. Yes, Carl. If we go into battle without our armor on, we have to stick on the Lord, and the Lord, we will help on Right. Prepare for everyday battle spiritually. Put the armor on. Prepare our minds and our hearts with the word of God in prayer. When you think of our troops, they're always cleaning their weapons. Okay. Sure they're ready to fire. That's right. And so then we ought to keep our own lives pure and clean in preparation for the battle spiritually. Right? We're planning to evangelize. Know what the gospel is first. Be prepared. Learn how to evangelize. Uh, if you're going to be a missionary, you're going to have to learn a language if you're going overseas. Be prepared. Learn a language. Uh, if you want to uh, uh, serve the Lord in any capacity, prepare for it. Take training for it if need be. Perhaps some of you would like to counsel others. Well, then get some counseling instruction and training. Enter into the church class and counseling. Or go over here to the college and take the uh, Master of uh, Biblical Counseling uh, Studies. You see... Too often today, people just think, well, you know, I don't have to prepare for this. You know, I want to get married, but I haven't saved for it. I haven't prepared for it. Uh, I want to have a house, but I want to have a house when I get married rather than a house when my folks got it 10, 15 years into their marriage. Uh, the idea today is that so often we do not prepare and use our heads first before taking action. And that's where these Proverbs are all about. And it applies in many areas of our lives. Verses 12 to 15, the words and the work of a fool. In verse 12, notice here the contrast with the fool is that the words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. They, they are gracious, they bring grace, they give grace, and, they, and he receives grace and favor in return. Whereas the fool's lips consume him. All right? 
The wise individual's words are gracious in content, uh, Walter Kaiser says, winsome in spirit, affectionate in appeal, and compliant and affable in tone. How do we speak? The speech that we have is talked about constantly in Scripture. And remember, in the, in the uh, book of Matthew, uh, Jesus himself said that we will be judged for our speech. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 to 37. The speech of a fool is characterized by a display of a lack of wisdom, unwise words. Uh, it often results in wicked madness, according to verse 13. Uh, he just keeps on talking. Verse 14a. Doesn't know when to be quiet, when to listen. How many ears do we have? How many mouths do we have? So James says that ought to teach us to do what? Listen twice as much as what we say. Uh, you know, only a teacher is the one who gets to come up here and just keep talking. All right? That's why James said, don't everyone be a teacher. Because when you say something, it gets out of your mouth. You listen to it on the recording later and say, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. Right? All right? And your ears stay open. That's a good one. I like that. All right? Look at the knowledge of a fool. He is ignorant of the future. The last part of verse 14. The writer here, Solomon, says that the fool is incompetent. Why? Because he's not diligent in the area of work. He's lazy. He's lazy in verse 15. Michael Eaton says this about it, a moral and intellectual laziness which leads to a stumbling, fumbling, crumbling life. I had to put that in there. That just sounded too neat. Stumbling, fumbling, crumbling. Those are the three words to describe a fool's life because of laziness. And that laziness is both physical and intellectual. Derek Kidner says the fool would get lost, we might say today, even if you put him on an escalator. <laughs> That's like leaving the subway in Atlanta. There was one way out and there was one escalator. There were no stairs because it's, it's, it's the United States' longest single escalator in the deepest station on a mass rapid transit place in, in the United States. And when you stand there and you look up at that, you say, boy, I'm glad it's an escalator. <laughs> There's only one way. And the only way you can get lost is not getting on the escalator. And if you get on the escalator, there's no way off. You're going to end up at the right place. All right? He does not know enough to come in out of the rain. You ever hear that proverb? Yes. Can you think of others like it? We've had a lot of proverbs today, haven't we? About rung everyone out there. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Good. He couldn't find his way out of a wet paper bag. Couldn't find his way out of a wet, wet paper bag. All right? Those are the type of problems that we're talking about here. This is what a fool is, you see. Due diligence in the last verses. Solomon here gives a woe oracle in verse 16 and a blessing in verse 17, and they describe two different national destinies. The blessing talks about security. The woe talks about disaster. And he says, by these verses, he's saying, wise people truly care about how leaders govern their home country. And the opposite is a fool does not care. And by this, I, you know, applying this to America, it's the fool that doesn't vote. It's the fool that doesn't care what's going on. Because if we care what's going on, then we ought to be also ready to do something about it and be involved. And this is what these last verses are all teaching. Good national leaders are talked about here. Solomon says, good national leaders exhibit personal independence, maturity, wisdom, and self-control. Look at Rehoboam. In Isaiah 3, 1 to 5, God says, I will judge you, Israel, for your unbelief. I will make children your rulers and unruly young people your leaders. In 1 Kings 12, 10 through 12, after Solomon dies, Rehoboam comes to power and he has these young people gathered around him who say, hey, you tell the people that you're going to be worse than your father, that your little finger is thicker than your father's thigh, 
And if they thought they had a whip, yours is going to be like scorpions. And he did so and divided the kingdom in one year. Second Chronicles 13, 7 said he did this because he was a child. He was 41 years old. First Kings 14, 21 tells us that when he came to power. But even at 41, he was so immature and timid and foolish. He's the perfect example. I think Solomon had an inkling of what was coming. That as he wrote this, this is what's going on in his life as he reaches the end of his life. And this is what's going to happen to his kingdom. Verse 18 suddenly talks about lazy homeowners. If we don't take care of maintenance of the house, what are we going to find? Well, if we had rain last night, you may have already found out. <laughs> you may have a leaky roof. But like home, like country. The context here is talking about the nation. The lazy will suffer loss, but the diligent will enjoy the fruits of their labors. They will enjoy food enough, drink enough, and money enough to take care of every need, according to verse 19. And Exodus 20 says, don't curse your ruler. Don't speak disrespectfully of him. This is a law. Exodus 22, 28 says, don't curse a ruler. It's a law. It was Moses' law that this should be done. And 1 Timothy 2, 1-2 in the New Testament, we are to pray, not curse, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Remember, the walls have ears. Don't even speak ill of your president or your senator or your mayor in your bedroom. The challenge here by Solomon is to remain calm and submissive in the worst of national sloth, national immaturity, and indulgence. Obey and honor national leaders. So our summary is this. Diminutive size and seeming insignificance of flies, verse 1, snakes, verses 8 and 11, and birds, verse 20, conceal the great potential for harm that they possess. If nothing else, this chapter leaves us with this lesson. Pay proper attention to the so-called little things in life, both personally and nationally. If we don't, we will regret it. That's the message of chapter 10. And as we move on from there to chapter 11 and 12, Solomon's going to pick up on this. He's told us the difference between foolishness and wisdom. And now he's going to tell us how do we then live. Chapter 11 and chapter 12, how do we prepare to die? That's about prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for everything you've given us this day. We thank you for this chapter and its lessons, the teaching it's given us. Help us even today as we see even tiny critters uh, that we might remember these lessons. And as we go through this week, help us to take care of the little things so that we do not fall behind, so we do not ignore that which can cause great harm or difficulty in the future. Help us to be responsible citizens. Help us to serve you and to guard our words and to pray for our leaders. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great Thanksgiving week.